Last week, we opened the year, in a way, transitioned from the old year into the new year by presenting this thought of the best year ever. And I reminded those of you who were here at the beginning of 2020 that we did the same idea then, and we all know how 2020 went for no one. It was the best year ever. So we decided to try this again. And we provided you last week in the lobbies and on the side table with a questionnaire. It has 31 questions on it, one for each day of January, basically. Not that you have to fill out one a day, but they're very thought-provoking questions. And there are several questions on here related to your relationship with God, practical ideas for your life, uh, your spiritual walk, your service for the Lord, and so on. And we encourage you to take it home and use it, think through some of these things, and begin to formulate some thoughts for how you can make this the best year ever. Well, one of my children took it home, one of my daughters, and began filling it out. And uh, I was out and about, and my wife took a screenshot of, of one of the pages and sent it to me. And there was one that um, was humorous that we, we got a laugh out of. It, it, was, it was something that was humorous and just enjoyable in that way. Um, that question and answer came from, what is the single biggest time waster in your life, and what will you do about it this year? And my daughter, who filled this out, wrote, Michael interrupting school. So you can get an idea of what she thought about that. But then just a few, well, actually, the very next question on the sheet. It's on the back of the first page, so technically it would be page number two. And the question on it is this. What is the most helpful new way you could strengthen your church? And my daughter wrote this. Tell people about Jesus. And, you know, my wife texted me that and said, our daughter gets it. She gets it. It's one of those moments as a parent, you're like, wow, something is going correct. <laughs> Something's going right in this, this thing called parenting. And it's challenging, isn't it? Because ultimately, there are a lot of things a church can be there are a lot of things a church can do. There are a lot of pieces, parts that make up the body of Christ. That's what Paul termed us as in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, wasn't it? He, he made it parts of the body. Some are the head, some the mouth, some the fingers, some the toes, some the arms, some the legs, etc., each one has its place in the body. But ultimately, all of the parts function together toward a particular 
goal. And if you're ever in a position where part of your body is working toward one thing and part of it's working toward another, how does that go? We would say that's working against, right? That's not a good thing, and usually it, it ends up poorly. All the parts work together toward a goal. Not every part's the same. Not every part should be the same. Not every part operates the same. But yet, the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is that within that diversity, different parts operating in different ways, there is a unity when those parts that operate in different ways work together toward the same goal. And what is that common goal that we should gather around as believers in Jesus Christ? What is it? Should that common goal be um, related to, I don't know, the color of the carpet in the auditorium? Should that common goal be um, that there's complete agreement on every jot and tittle of what the church does and how it operates should that common goal be I don't know you pick I think that if that's what our conclusion is as believers or as members of a local church we've missed something because it's not those things that should create the unity in the church. The thing that should create unity in the church is to recognize that, yes, we're all different parts, pieces. We may operate differently from one another. But what we can gather around in unity and should create that bond of unity is to see people saved. And I hope you agree with that. I want you to join me in Acts chapter 1, a familiar text. We've been here before. What is the church? The church is a called out group that's made up of all the blood-bought children of God who have received a global mission from Jesus following his crucifixion and resurrection and immediately preceding his ascension back to heaven. And we find it in each of the Gospels as well as here in Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11 so we gain the context of it. Here in Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. 
For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come again in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven." Through this text, we learned that Jesus spent 40 days with his followers after his resurrection. And during that time, he showed infallible proofs of his resurrection, that it was a literal bodily resurrection from the grave. In other words, Jesus gave undeniable evidence of it. It's been shared before, I in our our church about how even after Jesus was raised and had appeared to his disciples many times in Matthew 28 the Bible says when he took them up on the mount they worshipped and yet some of them doubted it's amazing thing but by this point just before his ascension there's undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the grave it was a literal bodily resurrection it's interesting as you look at evidence, there's more evidence to give veracity to a historical resurrection than there is evidence against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. During the 40 days, the text explains that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching his disciples. Big surprise, right? It's what he spent three and a half years of his ministry doing. The night he was betrayed, arrested, before he was crucified the next day, he spent that time teaching them. And here he is again. And he's teaching them primarily in two subjects during these 40 days. The kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. And so when you come to verse number 6, it's not unreasonable, is it? that the disciples would ask him about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he's been teaching them about these two topics, the, the, the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. And now they're going to ask him a question about the Holy Spirit. But their question reveals a lack of understanding. Even as Jesus taught about the kingdom during his ministry, even as he's teaching them now about the kingdom, they've, they've missed something. In fact, one writer says there are as many errors in the question as there are words. They use a verb, a noun, and an adverb. And each word taken individually identifies their doctrinal confusion about the true meaning of God's kingdom as Jesus presented it. Look at the verb that they used. The verb is restore. 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? How, how does that reveal an error? Because it shows that they were expecting a political, geographical kingdom still. They were expecting Jesus to defeat the Romans and set up a political kingdom. That's how they saw the kingdom of God, a kingdom of this world. Then they used that national word, the, 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 the noun here, Israel. And that shows that they were expecting a national kingdom that would relate only to the people of Israel as if Jesus' coming and his invitation into the kingdom was only for Israel. And then the adverb, at this time, shows they were expecting this, a restoration of a political kingdom that would relate only to Israel, when? Right now. Okay, Jesus, we missed it. We didn't get the whole crucifixion, resurrection thing. But now that that's done, you're going to give the kingdom back to Israel, right? Right now? What does all of this have to do with us? You say, I'm not a Jew. I'm not looking for Jesus to set up a political kingdom like they were right now. What does this have to do with us? Well, I think like the disciples, we can get too focused on the things of this life in this world. Do you ever find that to be true of you? Are there ever times where you are convicted by the Lord that you've gotten so wrapped up in the things of this life, the here and now of this world, that you're not really even as attentive to spiritual disciplines, to spiritual activity, to service for the Lord as you should be, maybe even to the point of neglecting your walk with God, your personal daily walk with God. Is there anybody else like that? It happens, I think, for all of us. We can be so earthly. I think we can also be so heavenly in a sense that we become in, inattentive to the work that God wants us to do here and now. So earthy, we're so caught up in the things of this life, so heavenly. In the sense of we're looking for that time when we'll be with him that, that we're not even involved here and now working toward that. What did Jesus tell the disciples? Don't get so wrapped up in these things, these issues that the Father has taken unto himself, to the extent that he's not revealed it to you. But consume yourselves with the mission that you're to live with in the intervening time. Would you say tonight that we are still in that same time? Has the Father revealed to us, to this world, the kingdom of his Son? His Son setting up a kingdom in Jerusalem, yes, 
for the nation of Israel, but that will relate to the whole world. Has that happened yet? So we are still in that intervening time. And I submit to you tonight that like Jesus wanted his disciples to not be so consumed with that, but rather consume themselves with the mission he was leaving them during that intervening time. So God wants you and I not to be so wrapped up in the time, not so wrapped up in the things of this world, not so wrapped up in, oh, well, you know, we're in the last day. The kingdom's going to come at any moment, so let's wait for it. That we're not consumed with the mission he left for us to do during the intervening time. Do you remember how he said it in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus taught a parable. And the master was giving his servants instructions for the time he was away. And between the time he was away and the time he returned, he gave his, his servants a simple instruction. He said, occupy till I come. What did he mean by that? Do the work until I come. Well, friends, if we're still in that intervening time, that is still his expectation of us. Jesus went away. Look at verse number 9 again. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. A cloud received him out of their sight. We know the Bible tells us that someday he's going to come back as in a cloud. And if we're talking strictly about the Lord's return, in other words, we're not talking about the rapture, we're talking about the Lord's return at the end of the tribulation period. If we're talking strictly about the Lord's return, he's going to return to the mountain. And then he'll, he'll wipe out Israel's enemies at that time. It'll be a time when they're, they're being attacked from every side. They're going to be fleeing because of the attack that's being pressed upon them. And Jesus is going to defeat all of Israel's enemies. They're going to present to him the throne of David. He's going to sit on the throne and rule and reign for a thousand years in righteousness. That's not happened yet. Is Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? No. And you and I are still here. So that means we're still in that time. He went away. He hasn't come back yet. We're still in that intervening time when we're to consume ourselves with the mission until he declares mission accomplished. And he hasn't done that yet. And until he does, if we're to be the church that God made us to be, that mission must be our purpose. Each of us must adopt that mission as our mission, the mission that Jesus gave to the church. And each of us must recognize our mission field is wherever we are. You may be a stay-at-home mom, a teacher, a student, a factory worker, a store clerk, a business owner or manager. You may work from home, be an athlete, be self-employed or unemployed. Uh, at home, at school, at work, at the store, at the restaurant, wherever we are... That is the place of our mission field to do the mission that God, through Jesus, his son, gave us to do. I want you to see a few things about this mission tonight. 
very briefly. Number one, we have a mission to share. Verse number eight, Jesus told his disciples, you'll be my witnesses. What is a witness? There are a lot of ideas to what a witness can be. When we think about a witness, it typically speaks of someone that, that, that has seen someone else do something, and now they're going to act on it. So you think about a witness in a court of law. The, the witness has seen someone commit an act, and they're called upon to give testimony to it, and they're going to tell a judge, they're going to tell the attorneys, they're going to tell a, a room filled with strangers what they saw. There's a historic witness. That is someone who has seen some amazing event take place, some maybe some event of historical significance, and they, they share it. There's that person who, who says, um, wow, that, that's neat, that's great, that's significant, I'm glad I got to be a part of it. And then they share it, they're a witness. But you know what's interesting about a witness? You're only a witness, not if you see the event happen, but if you do what? If you share it. Ultimately, you're not a witness if you see it and then keep it to yourself. Yes, you've witnessed it, but you're only a witness when you actually report on what it is you've seen. Your subsequent action determines or defines what you are as a witness. It's very clear that that's what Jesus had in mind when he told his disciples that they were to be witnesses unto him. The word he used is the Greek word martis. It's where we get our word martyr from. It's a direct translation of the word. And it instantly tells us something about the witnesses of Jesus. They were to be so committed to the mission that they were willing to lay down their lives. For that mission. And this mission is one that we all share. It's not for one individual, it's not for one group of people, it's for all of us. What does it mean to you to have this mission? Can you honestly say that this recognition has had any type of meaningful impact on your life? There is not one person who is a blood-bought child of God who is lacking purpose or lacking a mission. You have been chosen and consecrated by Jesus himself to be a witness for him to the extent that you are more interested in completing that mission than preserving your own life. Are you sharing in this mission? Have you adopted this mission as your own? Jesus declared to his disciples the the scope of the mission when he spoke about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. 
These are geographic locations pertinent to the disciples in context and should be applied to all of us in our own context. And I already told you, wherever you are is your mission field. And you might find yourself in a host of different kinds of places. We support a missionary by the name of Enoch Kumar to India. When he originally came to Cornerstone to present his work, it was April 2017, and he preached from this text. And he shared that Jerusalem represents the home place, Judea the hardened place, Samaria the hopeless place, and the uttermost parts of the earth the hard-to-reach place. And we can experience all of those. Jerusalem might represent your home place, your home, your family, those immediately accessible to you. Could it represent your workplace, the, the community you live in, or the school you attend or work at? Judea, the hardened place. And you extend out, maybe it represents a, a county, a state, a nation, a, a place that is hardened perhaps by people who who have been around religion, they've been around even the Bible, maybe, maybe they're skeptical or critical for one reason or another. Samaria. He, he described it as the hopeless place. Remember, in Scripture, Samaritans and Jews were enemies. They naturally hated one another. To the Jew, the Samaritans were the worst of the worst in the world. Maybe for us, the Samaritan would represent uh, someone we don't get along with. Maybe a whole group of people, an ethnic group that, that we're not particularly comfortable with. Maybe a religious group or a cult that we are naturally hesitant to engage in a gospel conversation with. The uttermost parts of the world for us may, may mean places that we can't personally reach. But perhaps God is calling someone to do just that. To pick up and go to a place like that and serve him there. To find a way that you can contribute to those in those hard-to-reach places. Are you involved in the mission? Number two, we see here that we have a message to declare. And I believe that comes out in verse number three. What was it again that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples during that time by many infallible proofs, undeniable evidence that what had taken place? He had risen from the grave. What is the message that we have? The message you and I have been given to declare is this message. Jesus is alive. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The message that the disciples went about sharing, think about it. They didn't go around sharing Jesus was crucified necessarily. Why? Everybody knew that. Now we share that as part of the gospel. It is part of the gospel. But they went around declaring not, hey, Jesus died. They went around declaring, he's alive. Yes, you crucified him, religious leaders. Yes, the Jewish Sanhedrin slew him, turned him over to Rome so that they could crucify him. But he's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's alive. That's the message that we have to declare. 
It's precisely the reality that Jesus resurrected following, following his sacrificial substitutionary death that we have a message and we have a substance to share as we witness. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so, be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Do you understand Paul's logic? A message of a crucifixion without a resurrection is a pointless message. That's what he's saying. If Christ isn't risen, we're liars because we're proclaiming he is. We're miserable because our faith is worthless. Do you understand that? If there's only a crucifixion, our faith in God, our faith in Christ is pointless. If there's no resurrection. That's why my wife will tell you this. She'll attest to this. And I know it's probably unintentional. But as we've traveled around, and as I, as I pick up gospel tracts at different places, if I read a gospel tract that talks about the crucifixion and doesn't mention the resurrection, I, I don't like it. Because it's pointless. If he's crucified but not raised pointless worthless the resurrection following his sacrificial crucifixion is the substance of our message in luke 24 luke penned this that jesus said unto them them thus it is written and thus it behooved christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at jerusalem and ye are witnesses of this thing and here is our message it's simply the reality that we've experienced forgiveness through the death and resurrection of christ and because we're forgiven, we have the assurance that we'll enjoy him for all eternity in heaven. What a message it is. Number three, we have a might to prepare us. You've heard it before, so I'll not belabor the point. This is exactly a main reason why Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. And ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. By the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit was one of the primary topics of Jesus' teaching immediately prior to his crucifixion and after his resurrection before his ascension. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the fulfillment of the promise as the Holy Spirit came like a tongue of fire on the believers to enable them to witness and to preach the name of jesus but before giving the command to be witnesses jesus made a promise you'll receive power the power of god's own spirit coming upon them dwelling inside them it's the power of god's spirit that turns vessels of clay into something both precious and 
powerful as God's power resides within them, just as it resides within us. You understand, when we witness for Jesus, we don't witness alone. Rather, we go and witness about God with God, with the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul wrote it in Corinthians that the Holy Spirit, Spirit bears witness and he, he witnesses as we witness. You have God's Spirit thinking, living, excuse me, within you. If you're thinking, well, I'm not comfortable talking to people about Jesus. I, I'm not comfortable serving the church. I'm not comfortable ministering to others. Be assured tonight, you can do it. You can because God's Spirit resides within you and then number four we have a motivation to care look at verse 11 the angels appeared as the the disciples were staring up into heaven and said ye men of galilee why stand ye gazing up into heaven the same jesus which was taken from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven the disciples were standing there staring up into heaven as if waiting to see something else and these angels appeared to them and essentially said yeah he's gone yep he's gone but he's coming again but in the meanwhile go do what he said to do get on with what Jesus commanded you Friends, again, we still live in that intervening time. Jesus left, and he's coming again. But here's the motivation. Right now is the opportunity to share in the mission and declare the message. Some of you know when we first moved to Rocky Mount from Pensacola, Florida, we um, lived off of Old Wilson Road in a home that was owned by farmers. And the fields were around us, and for the few years we were there each fall, the landowner's son was the main one involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the farm, and we would see them put some of their equipment in the backyard, back of the yard next to the field, and every morning, very early in the morning, until after the sun had set, that equipment would disappear as the landowner's son and the workers that they had would go out into the fields to reap the harvest. And one day as Jeff was his name was making his way back by the equipment I was I was actually in the back just walking through the yard and walking through the field a little bit and I caught him and I was asking him about how many acres they had that they harvest and all of that work that they do and Jeff made a comment to me he said I'm not even sure exactly we we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 1400 acres that we have to that we have to take care of and he said this when it comes harvest time we work before the sun comes up and we work till the sun after the sun goes down every single day because we have to get the job done during the harvest. It can't wait till later. We've got to get it done during the harvest. 
Jesus commanded his disciples this in John 4, 35, Say not ye there are four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The intervening time between when Jesus ascended and when Jesus comes back is harvest time. It's harvest time right now. You say, well, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. That's the point. Right now is the only time we're assured of for harvesting. So when God places us in a position to fulfill the mission, to be a witness, let's not say, I've got all the time in the world. No, it's harvest time. And when it's harvest time, what do you do? You harvest. You get to work. I wonder, are we harvesting? Are we involved in the work that Jesus gave us to do? I think it's pretty challenging, don't you? What is the most helpful way you could strengthen your church? Tell people about Jesus. That's our mission. That's what we should be busy doing.